It's a horror. There's no simple, easy, benign way to say it. It's a horror to consider. Our history books taught us about it. We learned about it at school. It's a horror to consider. I'm talking about the Nazi regime in Germany back in the 1930s when they came up with this idea of a final solution, as they said, to the Jewish question. They sat at, set out, intended, took decisive, purposeful steps to annihilate the Jewish people, to kill all the Jews in German-controlled territory and much of Europe that they had taken over. It was and remains a horror. Perhaps you've visited some of the sites of those. I visited the site of one such atrocity when I visited Ukraine a few years ago. It is difficult to wrap our minds around such a thing, but it happened. And today we want to take a look many, many, many years before where another evil person, wicked person, attempted to annihilate God's people, the Jews, and God intervened in a way that was both miraculous and marvelous, and we celebrate it yet to this day. Well, that's kind of a downer way to start a program, but I don't mean to be discouraging. I mean to be honest. I want us to look at the stories that God gives us through clear-headed thinking and, and with eyes that can see. And we need to see how God has delivered his people. We need to mourn when his people suffered. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is Faith Is, and we're learning how to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're going to take a look at the story of Esther and of the attempt to annihilate God's people that took place many years ago in the Persian kingdom. And we're going to celebrate together that God delivers. And then we're going to ask ourselves the serious question. If Esther could stand up for her people, can we? Might God have something for us in these pivotal times that he is expecting us to do? Might there be a risk that we need to take? Can we learn from the examples of history? Can we learn from the Bible? Can we take courage to stand up? Well, as I said, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I pastor Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and we're delighted to bring you these programs. I appreciate our church's interest in this and willingness to support this effort, and we hope that it helps you. We hope that it stretches you. We hope that it helps you find those things that God is calling you to accomplish for him and not shrink from them, but stretch toward them. And we want to look at the story of Esther as an example of someone who, who really did, remarkably so, stretch toward God's high calling. During the Persian kingdom, Xerxes was the king, and if you read a different translation, English translation of the Bible, you may see his name mentioned differently. Some English translations use the Hebrew form of that name. And I mentioned that not to be confusing, but simply to say, sometimes we look at the, the Bible in one English translation, translation or another, and we assume that, well, somebody's been messing with the scriptures. Well, that's really not the case. Yes, there are difficult decisions translators have to make, 
But oftentimes when you run across something like this, where two names are used, it's just simply that they had to make a decision and one chose one and another chose the other. So, so don't, don't be shipwrecked by that stuff. Don't be confused by it. Don't be discouraged by it. Whenever you come across that, just look and see what's going on. You'll probably be able to figure it out. Well, anyway, King Xerxes was ruling over this vast kingdom and he threw a banquet party. It was a pretty long banquet or party. It stretched over 180 days. Um, sometimes people wonder, was that an exaggeration? Well, maybe it was a series of smaller events. We don't really know. But the story of Esther does say it was a very long celebration, very elaborate, very um, finely decorated, enormous uh, feasts were served. And, and it was a, just a, a time where he showed off his vast wealth and his kingship. Well, as part of that, the uh, people that were there with him well, they had too much wine and probably he got a little carried away. We don't know that for sure. That's just kind of the tenor of the way the author tells the story makes us think some, some uh, interesting things about what was going on there. Cause the story does, is not told to uh, flatter the King particularly. Well, he, he gets feeling his oats, we might say. And so he sends word to the queen, queen, queen Vashti, that he expects her to come all dressed up in her royal finery and present herself to the guests so they can see how beautiful she is. He just wants to put on a show of the queen and the queen's beauty. Well, he sends word to her by his servants and the queen sends word back, not going to happen, king. I'm not coming. Well, that was quite a thing to say to the king because the king had a lot of power and he could do a lot of things. And this enraged the king. Here he went from having this massive party to being furious. And um, so he gathered his wise men together, so to speak. And uh, they were considered the, the good advisors of the time, experts in, in their laws and so forth, and, and asked them what should be done. Now, it's really interesting. This is part of the humor of the story. Here's this king who commands this vast empire, and he can't even get his wife to come to a party. Well, it's just meant for us to, to notice the, some of the absurdity that's going on in the story. But also, we get to some of the really serious stuff that was going on. Well, his advisors, the king's advisors, said that, that she should have not acted that way, and she can't be allowed to get away with that. Because if she can get away with it, every wife everywhere in the kingdom will quit doing what their husband tells them to do. And it would be, in our description, chaos. And, and so the king issues an order that, that wives everywhere are supposed to pay attention to their husbands. I, I know it's different place, different time. Don't get distracted. And further, he says that Vashti is no longer queen. He removes her from her royal position. Uh, there's no indication in the text whether she was sorry, but that is what happened. Well, he kind of calmed down a little bit. And, uh, and, and later, his advisors, particularly mentions his young men, advised him that he should look for another queen, find a good-looking girl, and uh, bring her in. In fact, they suggested that the king gather a lot of girls from all over the, the empire and bring them in, and he could audition them and see which one he wanted to be queen. And so they did, and, and the text isn't real clear about this, but there are certainly implications that these girls didn't have a choice. 
when the um, representatives of the king went out, they gathered these young ladies in and they were expected to be prepared for the king so he could make his selection. Well, one of those young ladies was Esther and she was selected. She was a young girl. She was selected and taken to the royal palace where she was part of the group of girls that was in this, you might call it a beauty contest because they were there to replace this beautiful queen Vashti. Well, there's a connection between Esther and a man named Mordecai. And it's important to kind of introduce Mordecai at this point in the story because he plays a very pivotal role going forward, as does, and if you know the story, Queen Esther. Well, Esther was the daughter of Mordecai's uncle. So they were related and he had a responsibility for her. Well, both of Esther's parents died. And so Mordecai took her into his household and treated her, cared for her as a daughter. Well, when it was clear that she was going to be taken to the palace and, and she went away, he still kept an eye on her and it was possible for him to do that. Um, they were not completely isolated, or at least there was a way for him to have some communication to see how she was doing. And, and so she got along just fine. Now, if I didn't mention it, I need to mention that both Esther and Mordecai were Jewish. They had been taken or, or were descendants of the people, I should say, that were taken into captivity when Jerusalem fell and uh, Babylon swooped in and gathered up people and took them into exile. And they were now living here in Susa as a result of that exile period. So when Esther went into the palace and was considered to be queen, she didn't tell anyone about her nationality or, or her Jewishness. It just wasn't mentioned. Well, probably strategically so. We don't know that for sure, but we know from the story that she didn't mention it. And um, she was prepared, elaborately prepared. In fact, part of the story seems to exaggerate that and make us think that it was really an over preparation in order to point out the point that the king was so extravagant and over the top on so many things. But nonetheless, she and the other girls were prepared. And lo and behold, she was selected to be queen. And through the consequence of God's favor on her with the people that were helping prepare the queen and God's favor as she came to, the, to get to know the king, she was chosen and she became the replacement for the queen that would not do what the king said. And so they had a big banquet for her and she was properly installed and all was going along well. Well, Mordecai seemed to have a high position in the kingdom. And so he hung out at what's called the king's gate where business was conducted and and he heard some things and he was a part of some things and and one day he heard two men two servants of the king plotting to kill the king to assassinate the king well he had this back channel to the king through esther and so he got word to esther that there was an assassination plot underway and she should tell the king well she did tell the king and turned out pretty well because the king exposed the plot and the plotters were executed for their role in trying to overthrow the kingdom. And that was the end of that. Nothing more came of it, but it did point out to us as the readers of the story that Mordecai was involved and connected and things were going along just fine. Well, there was another man that we need to introduce into the story. His name was Haman. 
Well, Haman was a very high official, perhaps second only to the king in the kingdom, but, but at the very least, a very high official, so high that other officials in the kingdom would, would honor him and bow down to him. He was elevated to a, to a, to the, to a higher position than they were, and, and he kind of enjoyed that, but he had one thing that really bothered him. When he would go out and go through the king's gate in that area where Haman or not not where Haman would walk through, but Mordecai and the other officials were, all of the other guys, they paid him honor, would bow down to him, would do the appropriate things that were expected of a man in his position. But but uh, Mordecai wouldn't. He just he just wouldn't. And, and he didn't give any explanation for it. Um, he, he just wouldn't do it. And it enraged Haman. Haman couldn't stand that. He wasn't getting the proper honor from Mordecai. And so in the course of time, he hatched a plot that he was going to make an attempt to exterminate, to annihilate, to kill all of the Jews in the kingdom. It was all sparked because he was upset with Mordecai. Now, maybe we should pause here in the story just to, to maybe explain what was going on here. Yes, it was clear from the story that that Haman was upset with Mordecai because he didn't honor him like he thought he should. But there may be more to the story than that, because we also know that Haman was an Amalekite, and the Amalekites were ancestral enemies of the Jews. And so it's entirely possible that, that Haman knew Mordecai was a Jew, and that he was just using this as an opportunity to get back at the Jews. Now, that enmity, that tension may also explain why Mordecai wouldn't bow down because he, he wouldn't bow down to an enemy, but it also might be that he wouldn't bow down because of God's commandment not to have other gods before him. Uh, we don't know that exactly. That's just kind of what we kind of wonder from what we know about it. We also know that King Saul, years before, had failed to follow God's instructions and destroy the Amalekites. And so now here they are back to bite God's people again. And Mordecai is now a part of the story. And as we'll see, he gets another opportunity to do what God had commanded the people to do years before then. So story continues. Haman's upset. He's hatching a plot to go after God's people as revenge because Mordecai wouldn't do him appropriate honor. And so he, he casts lots. Now they did that in ancient times, but he was looking for the ideal time to go after God's people. And so they, they sometimes selected times that way. And, and Haman not being a follower of God would have embraced that practice. And of course, if you're familiar with the old Testament, you know, that sometimes God's people did that as well not an attempt to justify it, just explain that's what's going on. So they cast a lot, they selected a date. And so Haman then went to the king and said to the king, there's a certain group of people that um, they, they just don't do what they should do. And I would like your permission to take care of that problem. And to do that, I will give you a sum of money and various translations mention the money differently. Um, some of them say 10,000 talents because that's more in keeping with the, with the ancient text. However, it's described in the Bible that you use, 
This was approximately two-thirds of the annual income of the kingdom. That's a lot of money. So it gives you a little perspective on that, that that was a lot of money to entice the king to, to go along with Haman's plot. And it also demonstrated that Haman, in offering this amount of money, he's a pretty wealthy guy. So anyway, the king agreed to the plan, says to Haman he can make that happen. And so what Haman does is he issues a decree supported by the king that is sent to all parts of the kingdom, that on this day that they had selected by casting the lot, that people were free to attack the Jewish people and annihilate, kill, eliminate them, young to old, men, women, children, all of them. He sent it everywhere in every language that was necessary so everybody could understand. There was no doubt that this was going to be a day to get rid of the Jewish people. Well, Mordecai hears about it, and it's not surprising that he would because he's right there close to the royal court, works for the king at the king's gate, and he immediately puts on mourning attire, sackcloth and ashes. He goes out and he loudly cries his mourning for, for what is going to happen to his people, makes a huge demonstration of that, so much so that word gets back to Esther and she finds out that he's out there and he's put on this mourning attire and is weeping and crying bitterly about what's going to happen. And so she sends him new clothes, says, hey, Mordecai, put these clothes on. I, I know what's going on. Put these clothes on. You're out here like this. Well, Mordecai rejects that and sends the clothes back to Esther because she obviously hasn't understood. It's not about clothes. Uh, I guess this is where we should humorously say to all of us, it's not about clothes uh, for us either, but that's not exactly the context here. So uh, the story goes on and Esther is still trying to figure out what's going on with Mordecai. And so she sends one of her aides, one of her servants out to him to find out what's going on. And so Mordecai tells the servant the story so that he can go back in and tell Esther that her people under, are under enormous threat, that they're going to be annihilated in short order. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge warning to, to everybody that something's going on and must not be allowed to happen. So the word gets to Esther, and Esther hears what's going on. And, and as part of the message, Mordecai says to her that, that you're in the right place at the right time to appeal for the lives of your people. She sends back word to him that, that um, well, the king hasn't called for her for a long time, about a month, and that she couldn't just appear before him because if you just appear before the king uninvited and he does not welcome you in, then you could be killed. And so it's a very serious, potentially dangerous situation for her, and she has to, to do something about that. So he appeals to her, and, and in the process of this discussion back and forth, the message is being sent back and forth. He not only appeals to her, but he, he says to her, perhaps God has put you in this place for such a time as this, and you need to take this seriously. He, he includes the statement that, that he's convinced God will deliver his people, but Esther may be the one that God wants to use to bring this, this deliverance. Now, remember, she's a very young girl. 
really probably in over her head, swept up into the palace, a place she never imagined being. But now she's there and now she has this strategic opportunity and she has to decide what is she going to do? How is she going to manage? Can she do anything to deliver the people from this evil that is about to take place? Well, she sends word to Haman. Her final decision is that, yes, she's going to try to do that. And so she says to Haman, we need to get everybody to fast three days. Fast doesn't mention the word praying, mentions the word fasting. Well, by implication, I suppose we'd have to say they were praying, but it's interesting that it's not mentioned. At the end of that time, she gets all dressed up like a queen would, and she goes to present herself to the king. And she walks in, they open the door, and the, the tension mounts. Would the king receive her? Because if the king would not receive her, she would be put to death. Now, we don't know exactly why that was the procedure. It likely was a security precaution because kings were subject to plots. As I mentioned just a few minutes ago, they, they had these guys who wanted to assassinate the king. And so a security precaution, perhaps. And so if she was not well received, then the king would be protected from someone who may be up to no good. Well, the king welcomed her in, was delighted to see her and asked what she wanted. And it's quite an elaborate story, the way that's told in the, in the story of Esther. And, and uh, Esther says, well, I would like you, King and Haman, to come to a banquet that I'm preparing for you. And so he, she issues that invitation. The king is well pleased to accept it. Haman is amazed that he gets to go to the king or with the king to have this meal with the queen. And uh, so the plot begins to unfold. The, the, the strategy that Esther's pursuing begins to unfold. And um, they're all set up for something really significant to, to begin to happen. And um, so they have this initial meeting, this initial meal, and um, the, they conclude the evening and with the king still wanting to know what, what her request was. And she just simply says again, well, I would like you and Haman to come to, to dinner, to a banquet that I will prepare tomorrow. Okay. They think that's fine. Well, Haman can't believe his good fortune that he's being included in a dinner with the king and the queen. And he's just kind of uh, overwhelmed by all of that. He goes home, brags about it, talks about it. But on the way, he encounters Mordecai again, and Mordecai more or less ignores him. And, and Haman is just absolutely ticked. Can't believe what's going on. Uh, can't stand this idea that in fact, in spite of all of his benefits in the kingdom, here's this guy who's, who's continuing to treat him without respect and without the honor that he believes he should have. So he talks to the people about that and they, they, um, they decide that uh, he should go in and, uh, and, and talk to the king about that. He should uh, expose Mordecai in whatever way he can and, and before that, he should build a, a gallows where they can, they can execute Mordecai. Well, he gets that all set up and goes in the next day, and he's, he's going to talk to the king. But the king has had an interesting development overnight. Overnight, the king couldn't sleep. And uh, 
the king being sleepless, he, he wanted to do something to try to, I guess, get back to sleep or something. So he had them bring in the royal records and to read to him things that had happened in the past. And, and what they read, interestingly enough, was the story of how, hey, about how Mordecai had exposed this plot to assassinate the king. And the king says, well, what did we do to honor this man who rescued us, who delivered us from this problem? And, uh, well, they, uh, they say, uh, nothing. He exposed the plot, but we didn't honor him. So, so here it is the next day and, and Haman's coming in to go after Mordecai. And before he can, can get that out, the King says to Haman, what, what should the King do to honor someone that he would like to honor? Well, way the story is told and it's reinforced more than one time through the story is that Haman is quite pleased with himself. And so he naturally assumes that the king wants to honor him, that he is the person that the king wants to lift up and honor. And so Haman says to the king, well, the person the king should honor should, should be given a garment that the king has worn and should be put on a, on a horse that belongs to the king and should be led through the streets and have someone go before him proclaiming that this is how the king chooses to honor someone who has done right by him. And, and the king likes the idea, and he says to, to Haman, well, go do this for Mordecai. <laughs> well, you can imagine Mordecai is, is going to be honored, and Haman's going to be the one doing it, and that's not something that Haman really imagined having happened. Now, you and I would, would look at this and say, well, what's the big deal being put on a horse and led through the streets with somebody saying, look, here's what a great guy. But keep in mind that in ancient times, wearing a garment worn by the king was a very significant honor. It was a sign to everyone that this person wearing the garment enjoyed the unique favor of the king. It was as though the wearer of the garment, in this case, Mordecai, was taking part in the power or the stature or the honor of the king. And so when Haman had to be the one leading him through the streets, you can imagine that Haman was more than chagrined by having to do this because now his enemy, Mordecai, was being honored by him at the king's command. But he had no choice. He had to do it because the king told him to do it. Um, it's also interesting that, that uh, Haman's request here was probably intended to flatter the king because Haman didn't suggest that the king give this person that he wanted to honor great wealth. And so Haman's attempt to flatter the king to go after Mordecai is completely, completely messed up. And he goes and he honors Mordecai and he hustles back home. He's been well shamed. And of course, honor and shame was important in this culture. And so he goes home with the shame of this rejection on him. And what can he do? What can he do? Well, he commiserates with his family and they, they say, well, boy, you are in trouble now. And they don't give him a lot of hope that things are going to get better. And he needs to, to, to do something to fix this because, oh boy, things are not going to get better. Well, about the time they're talking about that, the king's 
men who are coming to pick him up and escort him to the second banquet arrive at his house and they hustle him away to the banquet now with the mixed sense that he's being honored by being invited to a meal with the king and the queen and yet he's been put up with the or had to put up with the shame of honoring this this enemy of his that he wants to to kill and to publicly shame in the killing now the story unfolds from there and and we'll finish the rest of that when we get back from the from the break the thing that i want to remind us about that we're going to revisit more and more is the the pivotal point of the story and it unfolds real interestingly from here on out the pivotal point of the story was esther facing the challenge would she step up would she step up and advocate for her people and she's done that. And now we're going to see as this unfolds, just what that meant and how God brought deliverance to his people. But it's clear from the story that he brought this deliverance because Esther was brave enough. She took courage to step up and to step out on God's, on the behalf of God's people and make the difference and be the difference for them. So when we get back, we'll finish the story and then take a look at what that might mean for us, what it has meant for us in history, how people who have gone before us have done that. And we need to consider then, what might God have for us to do? So take a little break, have some tea, have some coffee, stretch, walk around, come back. We're going to finish this story and God's going to encourage us to have faith in him. And we're actually going to do it. We're going to do what God calls us to do. Be right back. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall Vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD for a 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. While the cancel culture is determined to destroy our history, bringing violence and terror to city streets, America Out Loud will enhance its own message of love and honor 
for the American traditions and constitutional values that have always been the backbone of what America means. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is your program, Faith Is, the program we do to benefit you so that we can develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've been reminding ourselves and reliving the story of Esther, and we're going to continue that. It's quite a story, and it's quite an amazing turn of events that kept happening here. So we've been watching how God's people became subject to a serious threat of annihilation, extermination, and how God has intervened and and placed Esther in a strategic position in the royal palace to intervene with the king. She does so at the risk of her own life. Her, her, uh, I guess you say stepfather, he acted as a stepfather for her. Mordecai enters the situation and encourages her and says, perhaps God has put you here for such a time as this and you need to take advantage of your opportunity and and step up to your responsibility. And so she agrees to do that. The king welcomes her. She's invited the king and Haman to a a dinner, which they attend, and then she invites them back the next day. And so we left the story as Haman was being picked up at his residence to be escorted to the, the palace so that he could have the second banquet or second dinner with the king and the queen. And so they have their dinner together. And, and finally, the king asks Esther again, well, what is it you would like? And she explains to the king, this wicked man, Haman, has plotted to destroy my people, to kill them all across the kingdom. It goes on, tells him the whole story of, of what Haman has been up to. And Haman, of course, didn't know Esther was one of the Jewish people. And now the, the queen that the king had chosen is now subject to be killed on this day in the future where he planned for the annihilation of the Jewish people. Well, the king is furious. Here's his queen that he specifically chose. Here's this man he promoted to a high office. And so in his rage, he leaves the room, goes out into the garden of the palace to to, uh, calm down, consider what to do, I guess. And Haman remains in the room with Esther, pleading his case because he realizes his life is in jeopardy. And he pleads with her. And as part of that, he he falls on the area where she's sitting to to have the meal. Uh, Roughly, we'd call it a couch where they often ate in a reclining position. And he falls as though pleading for his life. And just as he falls down, where the queen is, the king comes back in and sees him and begins to think immediately that that now Haman is after his wife. And, and the king is further enraged. There are very strict rules in those days that you didn't touch the queen, you stayed away from the queen. And Haman has violated that. The king has jumped to a conclusion that, while not correct, puts Haman's life in jeopardy. And in fact, Haman is taken away and killed. We don't know exactly the process that took place. He may have been killed on the spot. There's some evidence in the text for that. But at any rate, 
Haman who had plotted against God's people is now dead. But that doesn't solve the whole problem because the king's edict still remains in place. And, and the king's edict is one of those things that can't be changed. That's, that's the way the Bible describes it. Well, we don't know if it really couldn't be changed or if because of the ego of kings, they didn't change them. So they had to come up with another way to help the situation. Uh, Esther introduces Mordecai to the king. Together, they work something out to deliver God's people. The king agrees to it, gives Mordecai the authority to take care of it, and they issue a new decree that says that the Jewish people on the day Haman planned to exterminate them would now be permitted to fight back and to, to kill their enemies. The, the day comes, and sure enough, God's people, the Jewish people, kill tens of thousands of their enemies across the kingdom, and they are delivered from the evil that Haman intended for them. Uh, some people get a little squeamish when we read in the scriptures that so many people were killed as a result of, of, of these kinds of things. And, and to be sure that people were killed, we don't know if the numbers are an exaggeration. There was a tendency in ancient times to exaggerate those numbers. But we need to realize that God in his providence realized, wanted to protect his people, realized they needed protecting. And we need to trust that he knew what he was doing when he, he brought that kind of, of um, judgment on those people. You know, when you plot to kill somebody, that's a violation, and, and God would understand that very clearly. Now, it's also interesting in the um, process of defending themselves and, and the process of all these people being killed, even though the king's command specifically gave the Jewish people permission to take the plunder of their enemies, they did not. They did not, and it says that in the, in the story, that they didn't take plunder, and that was because years before, when God had given his instructions about the Amalekites, he told them not to take plunder. Saul violated that command, but in this case, they respected that and did not violate that command. A festival that the Jewish people began to celebrate and was celebrated from that time on called Purim was a result of this great deliverance. And so they would have feasting for two or three days as a way to honor God and to celebrate that God had delivered them. It's also interesting in the story, and it's always interesting how God tells us these stories. And, and sometimes we don't have the opportunity to understand them, but Haman began his plotting. Remember, he cast lots, and, and a lot in that day was called Pur. So that's why it's Purim, the festival of Purim, because of the lot that Haman cast to determine the day. Well, Haman began plotting the destruction of God's people during the very month that they were celebrating Passover, or the deliverance that God had given them from the hands of Egypt. A plot was now hatched again to destroy them, but 11 months later, they're celebrating what we now call Purim, because God delivered his people one more time. Well, we've need to ask ourselves, where are we in this whole situation of defending what God has given us and defending God's truth and God's people? We live in times that these kind of things are under threat, that these kinds of things are, are being challenged. And so we need to ask ourselves, could God be calling some of us to step up in ways we never imagined necessary? In history, we've seen God call people to do that. 
Um, you remember this movie perhaps several years ago, Amazing Grace, that told the story of William Wilberforce in England and his efforts to get rid of slavery. I mean, people today say, well, we just can't challenge what's going on. We can't, um, we can't object. We have, to, we have to just kind of find the best way to, to get along with things. And Will, William Wilberforce said, no, we can't just get along with slavery. We need to stop it. And so he spent years of his life, but finally, finally persuaded people to outlaw the practice of slavery in England. And a man named John Wesley, who is the founder of the tradition that I'm a part of, the Wesleyan movement, he was one of the people that, that encouraged William Wilberforce. And in fact, one of the last letters, I think it was the last letter that John Wesley wrote, was to encourage Wilberforce not to give up. And he didn't. And he was able to deliver people from slavery. Related to the annihilation I mentioned at the beginning of the program from the, from the Nazi regime in Germany. You may remember the, the name of a man named Oskar Schindler. His story was told in a movie, Schindler's List, a horrible, uh, horrible circumstance that Oskar Schindler faced. But he took enormous risks and spent much of his money to deliver people from death to smuggle them out, to get them away so that they would not be killed. I mean, we look back at some of these people and we admire their courage. We need to ask, what is God asking us to do? Do we just need to go along with the authorities because they're the authorities? We remember in more recent times that Martin Luther King Jr. stood up for the civil rights of people, said, we're not treating each other fairly. And he appealed to the conscience of the nation and the nation responded. And we took steps to reform. Are we all the way there yet? I don't think anybody would say we are, but we give thanks and we celebrate the, the work of Martin Luther King Jr. If you ever go to Washington, D.C. and you visit the Lincoln Memorial, look for the spot. It's marked there. I was just there recently. It's marked. It's a, it's a really remarkable experience to stand on that very spot where Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And you look out across that vast reflecting pool and that vast area that was just crowded full of people. You can hardly imagine what must have taken place that, that day in the hearts of all of those people when they heard him say, I have a dream. And we all celebrate the, the way that dream has unfolded and helped people over time. It, it, these are heroes. What might God be asking us to do? Well, in more recent times, uh, there's another story of heroic behavior. And I have roots in Ohio because I was born in Ohio. And there was a young man from Ohio that um, stepped up in an amazing way in the, in the days during the Civil War era, during the challenges of slavery. He was a young man, but he was troubled by the silence of the church. He believed that slavery needed to be abolished. And, and he felt very strongly about that. He, over a process of time, became a minister and even a pastor. And it was because he became a pastor that he found himself at a district conference, an annual meeting of the churches. And at that district conference, they put out the challenge that there was a church that needed a pastor. This was a church that was in North Carolina, right where all of the tensions were rising over slavery and abolition. Um, 
This young man believed in abolition. His name was Adam Crooks. And he was challenged, would he go to be the pastor of this church? Because someone needed to go. They didn't have a large congregation, but someone needed to go. And they all knew the risk. They all knew that um, he might not survive. But he finally, after a time of prayer, he stood up. The people who recorded it said he was pale. He was, his cheeks were as pale as marble. But he finally agreed that he would go. Now, we need to remember that in those days, if you were north of the Mason-Dixon line and you were an abolitionist, you were kind of a radical. But if you were south of the Mason-Dixon line, as, as my friend and historian said, you were a target. And so Adam Crooks knew what was going to happen. 23 years old, he decided even though it was going to be hard, he would go. So he went to pastor this church, and naturally he was labeled as dangerous, an agitator, radical, a disturber, which was one of the things that they called him. He was denied the opportunity to speak in certain public forums, even though that violated his First Amendment rights. He was dragged from the pulpit and beaten numerous times. They tried to poison him twice and once by a false friend who, who pretended to be his friend and tried to protect him, but it ended up, ended up attempting to kill him with poison. One day, some armed men set an ambush for him, but when he was traveling through that area, they realized he wasn't by himself, and so they did not uh, try to kill him. They let him pass uh, on his own. Well, he had a terrible time, an extraordinarily difficult time. But he survived, and he helps develop this church that, that we now call Freedoms Hill Church. It was first located in Alamance County in North Carolina, near the town of Snow Camp. This group of, of Wesleyans that came out of the Methodist tradition, often called Wesleyan Methodists in those days, had, had this church that they had formed, but they didn't have a meeting house. So they got together, and by hand, they built this meeting house. It was quite an ordeal, foundation of field stones, hand-hewn pews. They often had to use pegs, not nails. They had to use what they had. There was no heat in the church and only shutters, no windows. But they finally had a place. They started it and worked through the winter of 1847, dedicated the church in 1848, and they were committed to the abolition of slavery. Now, almost immediately, the congregation began to help runaway slaves get connected to the Underground Railroad. Now, you know, the Underground Railroad wasn't a train with tracks. It was just a network of safe houses that stretched all the way from captivity to freedom. And there are still places today that you can see where they were hidden. There were all kinds of ways they developed. They even used a hollow tree that was less than a mile from the Freedoms Hill Church. They would hide the slaves there during daylight and then help them escape at night. And they used other, other tactics to stay hidden and to help the slaves escape to freedom. That's the dedication of these people in, um, in North Carolina at Freedoms Hill Church. Now, one of the things that really struck me when I began to get acquainted with this story was, was what they really must have had to put up with. In the process of time, the church was replaced by a better building. It, it, it crumbled, uh, uh, how should we say it? It didn't survive well. It, it, it um, had, had been there a long time, a lot of years, and, and it wasn't destroyed, but it was in really rough shape. But some people ended up attempting to 
restore it. And so it was moved twice in an effort to, to preserve the structure. Second time it was moved to central South Carolina to the campus of Southern Wesleyan University. It was painstakingly taken apart. All the pieces were numbered so they could reassemble it there on that property. They ended up discovering in the process that some, some of the parts, some of the, the wooden um, structure could not be saved. It was just too, too, badly, um, too badly gone for them to use it. So they would carefully remake pieces and put it back together, but they wanted to restore it like it had been. And, and I visited that, that building uh, a couple years ago, I guess now, and it's not a fancy building. It's not large, 27 feet by 36 feet. It's uh, very plain. They didn't have any way to make it fancy, but you can go in the building and you can see the, the original hand car pews and, and you can get a sense of what it must have been like to sit on those very hard benches to have church. Well, the thing that really struck me from all of that was not just the sacrifice they made, and they, they made a lot of sacrifice, not just the, the, the really impressive work that had been done to restore the church. Uh, and, and there's a lot of work that had been done to restore the church. And, and it's not just the fact that I was born in Ohio and, and Adam Crooks, you know, has a kind of an interest of mine because of being a fellow Buckeye. All of that's interesting and important. And, and, and I don't know that we want to leave any of the story out because they were courageous people. But one of the things that really got my attention was they preserved the original door of the church, and it's now inside, not outside, inside where we can see it. And in that original door are the bullet holes that the enemies of God's people in that location shot at the church while they were having church. Can you imagine? They're assembled just to honor God, to recognize that people needed to be free. They built that church, they said, as a place for slaves and sinners, because all kinds of people needed to be free. Can you imagine going to church wondering if somebody's going to shoot at you while you're inside the building, trying to sing or listen to the pastor speak? And I, and I heard that story, and I was a little acquainted with it when I got there, and I got better acquainted by seeing it. But I want you to know, when you go into a place like that, it, all, it, it feels like holy ground. Like, like you're just standing in a place that, that, that matters. And, and you think about the people and their courage to, to, to press through all of that, to their commitment to helping people and to not backing down. I mean, it was, it was so serious in those days that, that Adam Crooks was forced to leave North Carolina because he just had to be, had to be taken away. He had been arrested and charged on a couple of times and it was, he just had to get out of there. Um, it was so bad that one of the leaders of the church, a lay leader, a man named Makaja McPherson, was caught and lynched by an angry mob on his own property because they didn't like what he was doing to deliver people from slavery. Can you imagine that? You're hanged on your own property. Well, they came back a short time later because they needed the rope to hang someone else, and they took him down. What they didn't realize was that he had survived. He was still alive, and his wife nursed him back to health, and he lived to continue the fight another day. But th these people, they, they knew what it was like to stand up when God called them to stand up. They didn't 
back down. They didn't surrender. They took courage and they followed God. You know, that's what Esther did. When Mordecai challenged her and said, perhaps you've come to this place of responsibility, this place of opportunity for such a time as this, she really faced that decision. And you know, we sometimes, uh, maybe you don't hear it, but I hear people that complain about the state of things and wonder why things are as bad as they are for this reason or that reason or the other reason. And people will wish somebody would do something, but sometimes people just don't want to do anything. And aren't you glad that Esther did what she did? Aren't you glad William Wilberforce stood up and did what he did to get rid of slavery? Aren't you glad that Oscar Schindler stepped up to help God's people escape certain death? Aren't you glad that Dr. King spoke up to, to the conscience of the nation so people could realize we needed to treat each other rightly and put away some of the prejudices and things that have been going on? Aren't you glad for a young minister, Adam Crooks, who would go at the risk of his life? Aren't you glad for a lay person who is so committed that, that he became the target of a lynch mob, but trusted God enough to take that risk? Aren't you glad for a people at Freedom's Hill Church who said, we are going to trust God and we're going to follow God. All through the book of Esther, there's no mention of God's involvement in things, but without it being stated, we see that God was working behind the scenes to support those people. And part of the reason that we need to point out that God is not mentioned is because it seems that the way the story is told is that we're supposed to see that these events unfolded and were according to what God had in mind. And we need to realize that, that it's not right for us to just be fatalistic and say, well, bless God, these things are bad. I guess they're going to happen. And sometimes you'll hear people say, maybe, maybe you haven't. They'll say, well, if God wants it to happen, he'll make it happen. The whole book of Esther is meant to teach us that, that it's not the right approach to, to be just submissive to what might be going on. But the right approach is for us to have personal willingness to act faithfully in response to what God has put before us. And God expects us to step up at those kinds, just like Esther did. John Wesley said it well when he said this, we should every one of us consider for what end God has put us in the place where we are. And when an opportunity offers of serving God and our generation, we must take care not to let it slip. See, I think that's the key message of Esther for us today, is that God has given us gifts He's given us opportunities, and he's waiting for his people to step up and to take the responsibility and the opportunity put before them to act faithfully and to defend the truth of the Bible, to defend the gifts of liberty God has given us, to be an advocate, to say, we're going to follow God. We're going to take the risk. We don't know how the story is going to end. Esther didn't know how the story is going to end, but we're going to step up and we're going to honor God and we're going to do what we can. We're not just going to buy into some improper fatalism that just says, well, I guess it's going to happen. We just have to get through it. No, we need to follow the example of Mordecai and Esther and say, we're going to act to preserve what God has given us. What opportunity might God be giving you? Do you have enough confidence in him to step up and to stretch in that direction? Are you willing to take the risk? Because 
there's little doubt that it will cost you something. I'm not at all saying that it's going to be pie in the sky by and by. I think we need to be prepared to recognize that it's going to cost us something. I don't know what it might cost you. It might not cost very much. It might cost a lot. But at some point, we have to stop and think, what will we give to defend and preserve the gifts of grace that God has given us? What will we do to preserve the truthfulness of the Bible so people can know what God has said? What will we do to preserve the nation that clearly was a gift of God to us and, and arguably to the whole world? What will we do to preserve the bedrock teachings of the Bible so that they don't get diluted or changed? What will we do? Well, what we will do is we will have faith in God because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we will not back down. We will speak up, stand up, stretch toward God in every situation so that people can know that there is a God in heaven who delivers us from evil, and we're going to trust him. We're going to be like the heroes of the scriptures and the heroes of modern day who say, by the grace of God, here I stand and I can do nothing else. Famous words that you've heard before, now it's time for us to practice what we have admired for all these years. Well, may God lead you in the way you should go. It's been a pleasure to talk with you this week. I hope you'll take God's challenge, and we'll be back next week for more Faith Is, Absolute Confidence in the Trustworthiness of God.